0: This morning is Sunday, December 4th. This morning is Moshi Lessons. Those of you that don't know who Moshi is, Moshi is the Hebrew way to pronounce the name that you've come to know as Moses. Moses. So this morning is Moshi Lessons. Moses Lessons. You can turn with me to Matthew 5. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you, a little bit about one of the ways the Bible is put together. The Bible is a series of cyclical stories. Are y'all with me while you're turning? You do still need to listen. And if you'll make eye contact with me every now and then, it'll just encourage this poor man in his calling and occupation. Okay? Cyclical storytelling is something that is in the Bible the story of a continual falling under oppression, subjugation, to be restored, redeemed, and set on on high is a story that goes throughout the Bible over and over and over. In Moses' life, in Moshe's life, we're going to see some things that you'll be able to identify with in your life. You'll be able to think about other characters in the Bible and go, oh, wow, that happened in their life. And as you back off and get the 30,000-foot view, you can see, geez, this is what is going on in the world. The Bible does this in a variety of ways at different times through different people, giving everyone the most diverse opportunity in the world to see it in at least one of the stories and embrace it. Isn't God good like that? This is how you can have over 44 authors write the 66 books in the Bible over a period of 1,600 years and still have a common theme and thread. The stories are told different times, different ways, but the themes are always the same. This morning, we're going to cover one of those cyclical stories. I want to start with something, though, that is in Matthew 5 as a hint. In the Tanakh, what you see, the Tanakh being the Older Testament of the two, what you see is two major divisions. Now, Bible scholars will break these up into all kinds of divisions, poetry and all kinds of diverse topics. But what the Jews referred to as the two main classifications, anybody know them? The Law and the Prophets. You see that phrase over and over in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, you'll see it. In Matthew 7, 12, you see it. In Matthew 11, you see it. Acts 13, you see it. Acts 24, Acts 28, Romans 3, and the story goes on and on and on. They speak about the Older Testament as the law and the prophets, and that's important. In Matthew 5, I want to read to you one such instance. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law... Or the prophets, the two major divisions of the Tanakh, the Older Testament. "'I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. "'I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, "'not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen "'will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. "'Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments "'and teaches others to do the same "'will be called least in the kingdom of heaven.'" But whoever practices, say practice, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you agree with me that the law and the prophets are therefore pretty important? Why would they divide it into the law and the prophets? Think about it. The Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books basically is something that we would call law. Everything after that you could generally summarize as the prophets. In fact, the law laid a foundation that the prophets built upon and it was all pointing in one direction. And just to hint at that direction while you're in Matthew, let's turn to Matthew 11. Then I promise we'll get into lessons from Moshe. Moshe lessons. I met a man in Israel named Moshe Kapensky. And it's strange staring at a guy talking to him whose name is Moses. <laughs> you know? They're heroes. They're heroes. Moses is a hero to the Jewish people, to the Israeli nation, the same way you might name your kid after an American hero. How would you feel if people were talking to you about the heroes of your life and they had renamed them to sound more like their culture? If Yehuda became Judah and Moshi became Moses, just because it was easier for you to pronounce, how would you feel about that? It's just a thought. A little something extra for you to think about this morning. Matthew 11, starting in... uh, How about verse 11? Would that be okay with you? I tell you the truth, among those born of a woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What did the prophets do? Prophesied. Well, now that's not a hard stretch, is it? Huh? What did prophets do? They prophesied. But did it just say that the prophets prophesied? No, it said the law What is prophecy? It's the preaching and foretelling of something. It's the speaking unto edification and exhortation. Prophecy is saying something encouraging. What did the prophets and the law do? They prophesied. When we look at Old Testament, Older Testament, you need to understand something. For your edification, for your exhortation, for your encouragement, it is speaking forth a message loud and clear. Paul picks up on this theme. I'm going to read you something that you don't have to turn to. That ought to make you happy, huh? You don't have to look all over the Word for me. In 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 11, you hear these words. These things happened to them. And he was telling of things that happened in the Tanakh. The them here is the Israelites. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, the us, followers of the way, Jews and Gentiles who were in Jesus. Let me read this again. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall there are messages that were prophesied by the prophets and the law. They were spoken for your encouragement, for your exhortation, for your edification, so that you would not fall. Well, don't you want to learn what they are? These largely come through the plain word of the spoken older covenant. But they also come through the ministry of shadow and type. And most of you are familiar with those in here. You are foolish if you ignore shadow and type in the Older Testament. If you don't look at a man like Joseph's life and see something deeper in it, see a picture in it, you're foolish. If all you do is see the picture in it and you ignore the man's life, you're equally foolish. There is a balance to understanding the Word of God. There is a balance to looking at the Scripture. People say, "Do you take the Word of God literally? My answer to that is always the same, so if you, you, no need to ask me, because here's my press, the play button, recorded answer. I take the word of God just as literally as I take you. Everything you say is it literal? Absolutely not. Jesus, uh, Judah told me the other day something was cool. Did he mean it lacked temperature? Probably not. How literally do you take things? You, tell, you need to look at the word of God and decide from context what you think it's talking about. And then let the Spirit show you what you can discern out of it. With that in mind, I want to go to Exodus. We're going to revisit this idea of cyclical storytelling. Tell me when you're in Exodus, somebody just holler out, I am there. there. Come on. All are there. They're fast, brother. You've got to keep up with them. They are fast, fast, fast. <laughs> Who's got tabs? Who's got tabs? Exodus 1 picks up from Joseph who is special from birth. You remember his daddy gave him a coat of many colors showing that out of all of his children this was one who was highly favored. That coat is a story in itself. There would one day be a man who would come and his body would be made up of people of various colors. People of every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. And he was anointed by the Father because of his love for the Father to rule. Anointed for that. Exodus picks up with Joseph who was special from birth. He was also enslaved. He wasn't just special, he was enslaved, wasn't he? You remember? His brother sold him out, threw him in a well. Now, is that about Joseph? Of course it is. Did Joseph endure those things? Of course Joseph did. But are you not beginning to see some small parallel, at least in the most obscure way, of somebody who was special from birth, anointed, but sold out by his brothers and enslaved? Of course you can. You can see that in the nation of Israel. You can see it in the person of Jesus who personifies Israel. This first chapter of Exodus talks about Joseph special from birth, enslaved, and raised to the right hand of God. See, we've just got through telling a story in Genesis about this kid who was special, this kid who was loved by the Father but sold out by his brothers. Sold out by his brothers and enslaved after a crime that he didn't commit, that he was innocent of in Potiphar's house. But is that the end of Joseph's life story? Of course it's not. Joseph was raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, who was considered to be God among the Egyptian people. He was given the title, Zathanoth Panea." Now, you don't have to be... It doesn't stretch the realm of possibility. It doesn't push you beyond something that is reasonable to look at that and see, wow, Jesus was also called, set apart from birth, sold out by his brothers because of his special dream, his special coat. And although sin tried to enslave him, he rose above it to be Savior of the world. That's not a hard stretch to make, is it? That's the first cycle. We're going to roll through another cycle here in a man named Moses' life. Exodus 1 introduces us to the idea that we're picking up where Genesis left off. We have a transition from Joseph right into Moses. And He sets the stage by telling us in the first chapter that a king came into power who didn't know Joseph and who was threatened by these people. So He tried to be harsh to them. You and I live in a world system where there is a king, a prince over this world and He does not like you because you are a threat to Him. The Bible simply calls Him your opposition. And His response to your presence is to try to oppress you. He wants to beat you down. He wants to hold you back. He wants to harshly... Oppress you. Because if he can do that, he can keep you from seeing that you are a prince called to take his place. Too many Christians have accepted the fate that the devil has handed them. That is not our place. So God appoints deliverers. He raises up prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists to teach us to a place of edification, a place of maturity, a place of unity, so that you do not accept the fate that the devil hands you. Was Moses born supernaturally? Of course he was. you remember? What was the edict during Moses' birth time? Throw all of those baby boys into the Nile. Judah, what lives in the Nile? What kind of animal lives in the Nile? A crocodile. My son's eight years old and he knows that. Why do you think we threw the boys into the Nile? Because the crocodiles were a god in Egypt and they fed the Hebrews to their gods. The devil would like nothing more than to chew you up, chew up your fruit, chew up all of your offspring, destroy all the witness of God in the earth. He'll use any demonic thing that he can do to do that. But Moses was spared from that, wasn't he? God appointed two Hebrew women, Shifra and Puah, who were willing to bend the truth just a little bit for God. Isn't that interesting? So how could God use somebody who doesn't tell the truth? Well, how could God use you? Are you without flaw? Any of you in here could stand up like Jesus did on that last and greatest day of the feast in the third year and say, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Probably not, huh? And yet God uses us every day. The devil will tell you that you are a slave to sin because you've sinned. You need to look him in the eye and say, I am a slave to nothing because Christ has set me free. And if you point out sin in my life, by the way, you have no right to do that. But if you do, you need to understand. That's not really me who did that. That's my flesh. This is what the 7th chapter of Romans is about. Quit living in obedience to the condemnation that you hear coming through your ears. God has appointed us to a higher walk, a higher calling. Everything that stood opposed to you in this world has been washed away, covered under one man's blood. The Bible's a story, a cyclical story, of those who were oppressed, those who were pushed down, Who became redeemed and restored to something higher? Moses was born in a day when they fed babies to crocodiles. But because of two women who were obedient and bent the truth, he lived. God just so happened, appointed his sister to follow him as the little basket that was set out into the waters of humanity among all the demonic gods found its way into the court of Pharaoh. A person strategically planted. Wherever you work, wherever you live, whatever you're doing, you are strategically planted in this life like a spy. Come, looking at the land, going, wow, all of this belongs to my daddy and I can't wait till the day that we take it all back. That needs to be your attitude. If you interview for a job this week, if you have thoughts of what you can't do this week, you need to think everything out here belongs to me because it belongs to my father and he delights in giving it to me. If that doesn't give you confidence, something's wrong with you. You need to make up your mind. Decide whether or not you believe this Word today. If you do believe it, then live as if you do. Or you don't really believe it. I believe in deed over creed. And all of you that know me know that. Moses came to a certain age, and that's where we're going to pick up this story today. Spared from death. Raised up educated in the ways of the world because He was strategically planted, but having an inward calling. Have you ever wondered why you experienced the things that you did before you got saved? God can use every one of them. Does it mean that He profits through your sin? No, it just means that He's in the recycling business. He can take dried up, washed out people, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it was, and He can use it for your good. God's good like that. He can take your waste and make something that is life-giving out of it. Moses, raised up in Pharaoh's house, starting in chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Somewhere in the back of Moses' mind, he's remembering because his own mother ended up being his nursemaid, his wet nurse. He was aware of his Hebrew heritage the entire time he was growing up in Pharaoh's household. And this inward calling began to pull at his spirit. So he goes out because he was born for a purpose to begin the deliverance of Israel. And he goes out and he begins to look and he sees his own people and their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Could this be a good thing to do? Is God ever in the killing business? Well, that's a sensitive topic, isn't it? Could it be a good thing to do? You can answer me honestly. It could be a good thing to do. Was it a good thing to do in this case? Well, oh, I wonder. See, when you start feeling the anointing, you start feeling the calling. Did God anoint Joshua to kill people? I can absolutely assure you He did, even though you don't hear that said very often from a pulpit. God wanted one nation to displace another and that happens in warfare and God was exceedingly good at warfare. God Himself strikes people dead sometimes in the Bible. Is that the overall message of the Bible? Not at all. Not at all. The overall message in the Bible is that you be willing to lay down your life for the benefit of someone else, not go out and kill people. But Moses is there and this calling is pulling at his heart. He's no longer comfortable in Pharaoh's house because of something that is burning within him. And he sees injustice and he strikes out to do something about it. Could you applaud him for that? Sure you could. Should you applaud him for that? We're going to find out that not everything that a man has in his mind to do that seems good is a good thing to do. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked one, in the wrong. Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Why do you think Pharaoh tried to kill Moses? Huh? Rebellion? What else? Shamed his name? Okay, that rhymes, (laughs) Cass. All of a sudden, he saw in Moses a man who was willing to act upon his belief. Moses believed that he was called to deliver the people of Israel. He was born with that calling even if he didn't understand it. If he couldn't put it into theological words until later, there was something in him that burned when he saw the oppression of his people. There was something in him that couldn't let it just slide. Just like when you see injustice in your workplace, in your homes, and around you, there's a burning that just doesn't want to let it slide. You don't know whether you should write your congressman, you should go out and march in a parade or whether you should go into your prayer closet and descend to your knees, but you know something must be done. You just can't let it slide. Now Moses felt that, but what he did was go out and do what the flesh wanted to do. Do something about it now. Kill the man now. Can you imagine how hurt he must have been when the Israelites didn't receive him? Who made you ruler and judge over us? The calling was there But it was not time yet. In our lives, you're born again. You want to accomplish something for God and this is the most dangerous time in your life because you have what the Bible calls zeal, which is an intense desire, but you do not yet have the training for that. Now, say that's because Moses was just in shadow and tight born again. Don't you forget, Moses is 40 years old at this time and considered one of the wisest men. In Egypt. Now, why was Pharaoh threatened by him? Because here's a man who's willing to act upon his conscience and do something, and that makes him dangerous. As long as the devil can keep you secluded, hiding in your house, hiding in your circle of friends, no matter how big or small it is, he's got you contained. But when He sees in you the desire to break out of your circle, break out of your house, break out of your circle of friends, and be willing to take the fight to the enemy, He has to oppose you because you are somebody that will take His territory. Now the question for you does not become, do I do this? But when do I do this? The question for Moses was not, do I liberate Israel? But when do I liberate Israel? And we find out something had to happen in his life. And we'll see what that was. The early calling of a man is a dangerous place to be. This is why 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, says when you appoint somebody in church leadership, he must not be a recent convert. Now, it's interesting to see what the Bible calls a recent convert. Is a recent convert a week? Is it two weeks? Is it six months? Six months? Paul spent at least 14 years gaining the revelation that he began to preach and teach. Say, ah, but he preached the first day in Damascus. And he did, didn't he? And what happened immediately after he preached? He had to be let down from the city wall in a basket, run for his life, and go learn. He had a willingness... To go out and act. He had a willingness to take the fight to the enemy. See, the Bible is one story that repeats over and over and over, and that willingness made him dangerous to the enemy. So they shut up the whole city. The devil used people, said, We're going to kill that man. But God provided a way for him to escape so that he could be trained, which is what happens to Moses. Pharaoh wants to kill him. It just so happens that Abraham was married to several people, and if I lose you in this, I'm sorry, we'll go over this a lot. Abraham had a child by Hagar, right? He had a child by Sarah, right? Anybody know who Keturah is? That's Abraham's third wife. After Sarah died, Abraham took another woman named Keturah. I suspect that these three women... I know Hagar was from Ham, and I know that Sarah was from Shem. I suspect that Keturah was from Japheth, but I don't know that. Showing that the man of faith would produce offspring fruit in all the nations of the world one of keturah's sons was named midian moses flees from the domination of ham in egypt and runs to a place called midian fellow shemites and he finds a priest there and while he is there working you can turn to exodus 2 we're going to start in verse 23 Let me tell you real quick, the early calling is dangerous because recent converts are not ready to take the fight to the enemy. They have the desire but not the training. We have to learn first the distinguishment between good things and God things. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11, teaches us that it is only the mature who have been chewing on solid food for a long time that through constant use of their knowledge are able to even distinguish good from evil. How many times in your life have you thought something was good only to find out it wasn't God? Peter wanted to defend Jesus. This is a man who had been walking with Jesus for three years. He steps out and says, No, Lord, I'll never let him kill you. Jesus looked him in the eye and said, Get behind me, Satan. Is it because what Peter said was sinful? Well, you wouldn't think so. It was a desire to help Jesus, right? Is it because it wasn't motivated well? Oh, yeah, he loved Jesus. That was the motivation. Why was it wrong then? Because it was the kind of thing a man would have in his mind and not the kind of thing God would have in his mind. It takes maturity to know the difference between what you want to do and what God has said for you to do. This takes time to learn. It's not the kind of thing that you learn from simply reading a book. It's not the kind of thing you learn simply from reading the Word. You know what it's the kind of thing you have to learn through experience. Hearing from God, knowing what his voice sounds like, getting it wrong sometimes and remembering the pain from that event. This is a training that all men of God must have. So what do you think Moses goes off to do after he runs from Pharaoh? He spends time at a burning bush, a long time talking with God. We're going to start in uh, Exodus 2 verse During that long period, and I want to tell you just so you'll know, it's 40 years, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and He remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. In your situation, wherever you are right now, whatever is happening, you need to know God is concerned about it. doesn't matter whether it's a life or death situation or whether it's just a like or dislike situation. God is very much concerned with the affairs of men. Though if you were God, it'd look like little ants down beneath you and you might not be concerned about them. God's numbered the hairs on your head. He's very concerned about what you do and don't do. This idea of permissive will, this idea that says, Oh, well... I know God wants me to do this, but it's in His permissive will that I do this. Come straight out of hell. God is concerned about everything that you do. And to discount any decision you make as, oh, well, you know, I can just do what I want to do. I can lose my religion for a moment. It's wrong. It's really wrong. And if God makes it work for your benefit, it's just because He loves you. It's not because you did right. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. By the way, during this time, Moses has fought off some warring shepherds, found a wife, and done pretty well for himself. Apparently, Moses was not only a good-looking guy, he was a bold and strong guy. But after God teaches him about his weakness, after he spends some time learning how small he is so that he can appreciate how big God is, he has a totally different attitude. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up <coughs> If you glance at a fire, can you tell immediately that something's not burning in it? Probably not. He was staring at this, contemplating for a while. Sometimes God will do things in your life just to get your attention, to get you to meditate, to get you to wonder whether or not the way that you're walking is the right way to walk because He's trying to encourage you to the right way. Do you remember what He said to Paul when he got saved? Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? God had provided little obstacles in His life to get him to refocus, to rethink, am I going the right way? Am I doing the right thing? And he loved Saul so much that he finally appeared to him personally to get him on the right path. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, is that what God said? Did God say Moses, Moses? Sometimes we need to take our American eyes and throw them away. He said, Moshe, Moshe. That sounds strange to you, doesn't it? The Bible was not written in your culture. It was not written from your perspective. It was not written from your worldview. It was written from the culture, perspective, and worldview that God chose to display it through His people. We need to never forget that. Moshe, Moshe! And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The first thing that we need to learn as we walk in the kingdom... It's that God is a holy God. For His presence to dwell in your life, you have to be willing to walk barefoot in His presence. Take off your facade. Take off the exterior garment that you put on yourself to show people how cool you are, how strong you are, how together you are, how intellectual you are, how capable you are. When you get with your God, it must be in a barefoot type attitude. Lord, I'm just a man here. And I've learned that I'm full of flaws, full of problems, that I want to be in your presence. It requires a stripping of a human being. This does not happen the first day you're born again. You're lucky if it happens in the years that you're born again. It's a process. And the stronger you are, the longer it takes. I suspect that the reason it took 40 years in Moses' life is because he was a very capable man. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus rebukes Pharisees. He says, you err because you don't know the Scripture. God was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was pointing to a central truth in Christianity. Though their bodies sleep in the earth, their spirits are alive with God and will again join their bodies in a resurrection. You see this from the very beginning of the word on. It's one of those cyclical stories that starts in the garden and repeats many times in various ways, but it's not the story that we're telling this morning. If you'll slide over to the fourth chapter... I want to pick up with something that has to happen in every Christian's life. First off, in the early days of your calling, we have to be careful that we don't give a recent convert too much experience, or too much, rather, responsibility. They need time to gain experience. Secondly, through constant use of the meat in the Word of God, you learn to distinguish what is good from what is evil. And what God calls evil is anything He didn't plan. You understand what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be wicked to be evil. To be evil, it just has to be something that is not God's plan. It's evil because it's error. Thirdly, you need to realize that as you are called and as you are being equipped, you have become dangerous to the enemy. And once you have not only the desire to attack the enemy, but the equipping to attack the enemy, you are really dangerous the enemy. So He wants to stop you from that. In Exodus 4, we see the special equipping, the training, not just to display what you know, friends, not just to show people that you're an eloquent speaker or an informed person or somebody to be respected. What God's interested in training you to do is whatever it takes to show Jesus through the actions of your life in any and every situation. You remember I told you we'd cover some shadows and types? It's not just Moses' life, it's the events of his life. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses has had this long discussion with God. You know, Lord, I know you want me to go be a deliverer, but I no longer think I can be a deliverer. I know you want me to do this, but I don't feel capable of doing this. This is right where God wanted him. Now the question is, did he want him to stay there? No, God wants the kind of boldness and confidence that He puts in you, not the kind that's just naturally there. Somebody says, Eric, you're always talking about being bold and strong and all of those things. That's just your personality. If it was just Eric's personality, God couldn't use it. God will take you to a place where you have been stripped to your bare feet. You don't think of yourself very highly. You understand what your weaknesses are. And then you are ready to receive the courage confidence and strength from the Lord so that you can lean on His power in you and not your own strength. That's how you know the difference between your right arm and God's power working within you. But it doesn't come overnight. I promise it doesn't. Friends, I was born again in 1993, and I was certain that I was ready to enter full-time ministry by 94. And if 94 wasn't the day, oh, by 95, I could quote my pastor's stories and my pastor's teaching verbatim. And I don't think there was anybody else in my peer group that could quote Scripture or remember things like I could. So I was sure I was ready. Right? All the arms of Eric. Now these arms aren't impressive, but back then I had those too. Ninety-six comes. I said, all right, well, you have to be a servant in the kingdom. So I'm, I'm going to clean toilets for Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes. My eyes aren't on going into ministry. My eyes are on serving Jesus. Ninety-seven comes. I was ordained October 12, 1997. So surely, surely, that's when I would enter into ministry because I'm ready, right? It doesn't happen. 98 comes. Now I'm on staff and ordained, being paid to preach. Oh, this is time. That's right. I mean, full-time ministry, what my life's calling is about, it'll happen any moment, right? It's just a matter of finances at this point. 99 comes. It's not happening in 99. Oh, Two thousand's always been a special year in my mind. It must be 2,000. 2,000 comes. My God, did 2,000 come. <laughs> in the year 2,000, I was thrown from a church, thrown from a city, thrown from a peer group out to Catholicville. Didn't know anybody, didn't know what God was doing, was upset, was hurt, but certain that I was called. Guys, we are almost in 2006. And what I was sure would occur in 1993 or 4 has not yet occurred. And do you know why? God is interested in thoroughly equipping His saints. Now, you're a special privileged group of people here. I get to experiment on you. (laughs) Since I am a young pastor and God is building into me the kind of desire, the kind of strength To constant through constant knowledge of the Word, discern what is good and evil. Since I'm learning to display Jesus in my walk, in everything that I do, I'm practicing on You. And as I get better at it, perhaps He'll add one or two more people to practice on. And then perhaps one or two more. So can you discern how mature somebody is by the size of their church? Certainly not. Certainly not. We know six-foot-tall icicles that have thousands of people in their congregations. But I can tell you honestly, I had to get stripped down to my bare feet before God could trust me with a handful. So said, well, that's just you. You're right. I'm probably the only idiot God's ever called. You were ready the moment you were born. Been saved always. Being honest with you, I'm willing to stand here barefooted. God has to do lots of work in Eric before He can trust Eric with Bobby's life or Diana's life because it's serious. So, well, I've been to Bible school. I've been to this. I've been to that. I know. And I'm not telling you you're never ready. I'm telling you that God gives you a little and when you do good with it, He gives you more. Yeah. And that it takes constant use to discern good from evil. You would think it would be easy, black and white. It's not. It just feels that way when you're first born again. Everything's black and white. You're wrong. You're right. He's going 56 miles an hour into 55. Send him to hell. <laughs> then later you said, well, what if he's a German and he's on the Autobahn? Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess we have to take into consideration culture and context. Oh. All of our Wednesday discussions, all of our board discussions, all revolve around the same subject ultimately. What is spiritually discerned? Matthew did a great job of teaching. I wish I'd been here for it or we had recorded it. But I've heard the fruit from it. It takes time to learn what is spiritually discerned. And do you know what 2 Corinthians 2.14 says? The man without the Spirit... It's all foolishness to him, but the man with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. God will show you if you give him the chance to train you. Say, well, I'm having trouble making this decision. I know that's part of the training. And you probably will get it wrong. It's part of the training too. If your heart's right, God will work through it. And when you get it right, that's great. Make a mental note. This is part of the training. Moses had to be trained just like anybody else. Spent 40 years being stripped so that he'd be barefooted before God. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to hear some special equipping for Moses. Moshe. Moshe answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, Yahweh did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that staff in your hand? I love when God asks a question. You know, Isn't that funny? Like, like God didn't know what the staff was in His hand. Of course he, he wanted Moses to look and think about what the staff in his hand was. Then the Lord said to him, What is that staff in your hand? A staff, he replied. Duh. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And he ran from it. When Moses was called, he was 40 years old. He saw an Egyptian abusing somebody. He ran right out, beat the guy into the sand till he died. The next day he comes out and sees another problem. He's learned how to solve these problems, right? You beat them into the ground until they die. Only it doesn't work. They don't accept His leadership. God has to send him off for 40 years to learn to be barefoot in the presence of God. Now, when he sees a snake, he runs like a coward. Is this because God wants you to be a coward? No. He wants you to be devoid of leaning on your own arm so that you can be powerful in His strength. Now, Christians get this wrong all kind of ways. There are those in the crowd that will lean on their own arm and call it God. There are others that are so devoid of their own strength that they run from everything and are scared. Both need work. This takes constant training, constant use. It's spiritually discerned. How not to lean on your own arm, but to lean on the strength of God within you. I can tell you, friends, He often is telling you to do things you don't want to do. That's hard. That is very hard. When somebody says something that steps on your toes, there are words on the tip of your tongue. You might lay in bed at night thinking, if they say this, I'll say that. Man, I'll get them good. It's exactly what you can't do. And at another time, he may put the sharpest, harshest word in your mouth that you never could have conceived from, conceived of. That's just how God is. And it takes discernment to know the difference. How do I know when what Judah needs is to be beat down, or what he needs is to be lifted up? You say, well, Christians only lift up. I assure you, that's not true. In the Bible, God is the perfect example of somebody who edifies, lifts up, and tears down. And He gives men different ministries, and within those ministries you have to be able to decide which. Patricia might need to be encouraged. Matthew might need to be slapped across the top of the head. Some are snatched from the fire and some are gently encouraged. How do you know? You have to be trained. So Moses, what's that in your hand? It's a staff, Lord, duh. He says, no, it's not. He throws it down. It's a snake. Moses runs from it. What does God tell you to do when you run from something? The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and he ran from it. Or it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now I'm going to try to refrain from going into the childhood stories about getting a tiger by the tail. But that very thing that God has put in your life that you want to run from with all of your heart, He will require you to grab it and seize it by the tail. Now, there's a shadow and type here that I promise I'll get into, but you are remiss if you do not get something. He had been emptied of his personal strength so that he could gain strength from being obedient to God. No longer did Moses feel confident to grab the thing that was opposing him by the tail and shake it like a man. He was scared. But when God said do it and he was obedient, it worked. Moses, through this training, learned the difference between leaning on his own arm and leaning on God's Word. So when he grabs it by the tail, what happens? So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord their God, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. What is? I want to tell you about a couple of shadows and types that are in here. When Christians learn to grab the things that they want to run from by the tail and let God's miracles happen in their life, people will go, wow, God is with that person. Every miracle that is done in the Bible is done from the perspective of teaching people that God makes a distinction between those that are with Him and those that are against Him. The miracles that happen in your life are not to pat you on the back. It's not even to encourage you. It's to show you and to show the people around you that God makes a distinction between those that are His and those that are not. But the Word of God is a many-faceted mirror. It shows God from a many-sided direction, like looking at a gem that has been finely cut. It's a deep, inexhaustible well. And there's another shadowing type here. The righteous standards of God displayed in this staff. The events of God that are righteous that have been shined forth for the whole world to see, upon which a man can lean upon, upon which a man can shepherd sheep with, use the crook, use all of those things, this staff that is the righteousness of God would be thrown down to the earth and it would become sin, a snake, sin, only to be snatched by God again and taken back up as a righteous standard to be held up for all the men. Now do you see what that could be? Do you see that? Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for you. He was a righteous standard before God. The very Word of God became flesh on the earth, looked like a sinful man for everybody to see as a miracle, as a testimony for the world to embrace. And then He was snatched up back to God as a righteous standard for all to see. He who had no sin was made to be sin for you. Moses had to learn in his life how to take by the tail the things he was scared of because God said so. Moses had to learn in his life how to display through his actions things that would witness God in every circumstance. Moses is fixing to face the most powerful king on the planet, the most powerful natural force on the planet. And what is he armed with? Actions that display the power of God. Why didn't God just give him the power to strike Pharaoh dead? Why didn't God just call him when he was 40? When he was 40, he probably could have walked in and... Not a good word. Slap Pharaoh across the face. Beat him down. (laughs) Could have smote Pharaoh. (laughs) The youth have a word for that kind of slap. Uh, But we're not going to say that in church. Or anywhere else. When he was a young man, he could have done those things. God waited till. He was not a young man. And he couldn't do those things so that the temptation would be less. God stripped him of his natural strength so that he could be filled with power from God to display these wonders. Well, what other wonders was he given? Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak. And when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back In his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Moses is being given something here. And this for Moses' life is to display that God's with him. In Moses' actions, it would teach about Christ. Moses had to be trained and equipped to where he could do this. The hand. Jesus is at the right hand of God. His hand, Jesus, is pure, beautiful, great, clean, no sin upon him. But he would be removed from the side of God, put out for men to see as something leprous, sinful, something to be cursed, smitten by God, only to be removed back to the side of God and shown again to the people as whole, risen, resurrected, free from sin, conquering over sin. Everything in Moses' life had to be retrained to display Jesus in some way. Now, this would give him an advantage on the earth with Pharaoh, It had a natural purpose right then and it had a spiritual purpose that Paul called examples for us so that we would be warned in how we should live. Guys, it takes constant use of the Word, constant training of the voice of the Spirit to teach us to distinguish between the good things that we want to do and the God things that we're supposed to do. When you're called, you must be equipped. That's what this ministry is about and the equipping doesn't happen in a day. I wish our seminaries did a better job of equipping. I really did. I wish our colleges, our schools... How many people have business degrees and they haven't helped them in business? How many people are college graduates as if that is the way to succeed? Do this, 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 and that happens. How many people are jobless right now that have done step one, two, three, four, and it didn't happen? It doesn't even work in the world, much less the kingdom. There is no fast track to the kingdom. There is no system that you climb. You simply, like Zacchaeus, climb the tree that God puts in front of you no matter how short you are until you see Jesus, hear His voice, and are obedient. Sometimes it's a year. Sometimes it might be ten. In the Apostle Paul's case, it was at least fourteen. If you want to measure yourself on a standard, let's use that one. Moses was given one other thing here. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention, verse 8, to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Jesus, the water of salvation, His redeeming blood would be displayed in the actions of Moses. Moses felt strong. He felt ready. He felt called at 40. And the Word treated him like a recent convert, ready to do the right thing, but not yet equipped. Forty more years go by. He's trained in the natural realm as a shepherd. He's stripped so that he stands barefoot before God, spending time talking with God at the burning bush, learning about His weakness and God's provision. Every weakness that Moses came up with, God provided a solution for said, you don't speak well? We'll give you a brother named Aaron. By the way, Aaron was three years older than Moses. These are old, old men by anybody's standards by the time they were even used of God. There's not a person in this church, not a person that I'm aware of affiliated with this church in any state that is as old as Moses when he started his ministry. Apparently, God's interested in the preparation phase, isn't He? There's a special equipping, a training to walk in a way that shows Jesus that occurs. But let's look at the results. What happens when you walk it out? Turn with me to Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moshe, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now, friends, in a new believer's class, that could be a real problem. This about like quoting from Ecclesiastes or Song of Songs, and not reading what's before and after it or the whole book in its context. I've made you like God to Pharaoh. Does that mean Pharaoh should fall down and worship Him? Make a golden statue of Moses? In the Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh was God on earth. He was Ra incarnate. Now I wonder where a culture got the idea that God would incarnate Himself on earth. Could it be that God built that into their culture? So Pharaoh is Ra on earth. He has magicians in his court, wise men. Daniel was one of these wise men in the Babylonian kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Say, well, God would never He'd put you in a foreign court as a wise man, as a magician, a fortune teller. Would God do that? The most powerful man of his day was exactly that. But that's another story. He, had, he was God on earth, and he had magicians who were his prophets. So in what way do you think God chose for a clash of his culture with their culture? He appointed Moses to be the one who was like God, who would speak, and Aaron be the prophet, the one who would speak for God. So in all of their interaction, you'll see that it was Moses' staff, it was Moses this, it was Moses that, and it's actually Aaron that does it, the prophet who carries it out. God told Moses to throw a staff down, right? Y'all remember that? You're going to see it's actually Aaron that does it. God set up a system where Pharaoh could look across and see, wow, I claim to be God on earth. And really, this guy represents God on earth. I have my prophet, and here's a real prophet right here. He set it up so that they could understand it. The Gospel is always multicultural. The Gospel reaches people right where they are. Watch what happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. Now there's a whole message here about the Levitical priesthood. But since I'm running short on time, we're going to skip it and get to the meat, or rather, the main point. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became like a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw his staff and it became a snake. If you've not been properly prepared, if you've not been properly equipped, if you are not used to hearing God's voice through constant struggle in every situation, what do you do when Pharaoh produces the same miracle that you do? I know you and I love you, but I want to tell you what you do. You run like a coward and go tell everybody that God didn't really need you to do that. He's now leading you to do a new thing. Happens all the time. Like John Mark. You turn around and run from that calling and go do something else for a while. Say, ah, God wasn't in it. I tried and I failed. You have to be equipped to hear God's voice to know when opposition is God putting a spur in your path to get you to go somewhere else and when the opposition it's just opposition that you have to overcome. And that does not come overnight. How do I know whether this is resistance from the enemy or resistance from God trying to get me to change my path? It takes time to learn that. It takes time to discern it. It's something that Hebrews says the mature do through constant use of the Word. This is why you don't put novices in authority. This is why we are becoming mature and we're not there yet. This is a process, but I can tell you after you've experienced it over and over and over, you begin to learn that familiar voice. You begin to sense when resistance is just God trying to get you to change your direction and when it's the enemy. What happens with this snake, by the way? (laughs) Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. God takes the righteous standard. He throws it to the earth. It looks like sin. The kind of thing men would want to run from and hide their face. Other, the gods of this world, do their own miracles and they war. But Jesus gobbles them all up. And when He grabbed Jesus again, He became the righteous standard, upheld, having defeated all the gods of Egypt for all the world to see. Every plague, Every plague that happens here is a specific judgment on the gods of Egypt. And sometimes the magicians can duplicate what Moses does and sometimes they can't. It was not the end of the story. The Gospel is not a Gospel that you try once and you didn't succeed so you give up and run home. The Gospel is the story of persistent spiritual battle. One kingdom against another and in the end God triumphs and it has been going on thousands of years. It doesn't rest upon you. You're not God's only mercenary. God's only man of power for the hour. God wants to train you so that He can use you properly like He did in Moses' life. Now, remember I said the Gospel was divided or the Old Testament, Older Testament was divided into the Law and the Prophets? Tell me about the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was on it? Moses and Elijah. Does anybody remember what they were discussing? His upcoming departure, then IV says. King James says his uh, decease. New King James says his death. I can assure you they were not discussing his death. That is the exact same word that means the going out that is in Hebrew translated into Greek was Exodus. In uh, Hebrews, it says that Joseph told the Israelites about the four the upcoming exodus and said, carry my bones out. It's the same word that Jesus was discussing with Moses and Elijah in your Strongs. It's 1841 is the word, okay? What were they discussing? Moses had gone through this cycle of being enslaved, being freed from that oppression, freeing others from the oppression, and taking people to a place of leadership and restoration with God. Joseph had been through. It had been a cycle over and over and over. Elijah and his life did the same thing. Now it was Jesus' turn to show that in the ultimate way. What all the others had prophesied, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, had prophesied about Jesus was going to fulfill. That's what that scripture's teaching about. Now before we leave this Exodus thing, in Exodus 8, 22 through 23, there's a plague of flies. And God says you will learn that I will make a distinction between the people of Israel and the Egyptians. In Exodus 9, 4, there's a plague upon the livestock where God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In Exodus 11, where we'll begin reading, we see it again. Verse 7, Exodus 11, 7. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any man or animal. This is the plague of the firstborn, by the way. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In the 10th chapter, you even find out that it was dark in Egypt in light in one city in Egypt called Goshen. These miracles, these events of your life after constant training, after use and hearing from God, are to display the work of Jesus in your daily walk so that others will go, wow, God makes a distinction. He's with Gabe and Debbie and I don't have Him in my life that way. He's with Cassidy, but I don't see that peace in me. He's with Darnell. He's with Bobby. He's with Diana. He's with Brad, but He's not with me in that way. I think it was the newsboys sang that song, you find yourself on the outside looking in, wondering what they've got, wishing that you were not on the outside looking in. That is the purpose of these events in our lives is to draw all men to Jesus. Each shadow and type shows something about Jesus in that way. Now, I told you that the enemy, when he sees your intent, he'll try to kill you. He'll try to keep you from growing into what you're supposed to be. He'll persecute you. If he can't take your life by feeding you to a crocodile or take your life because God's hidden you in Midian, then he'll try to keep you from being trained. You know what he said to Moses over and over and over in this? Okay, 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 look. Just take your people and go a few days. But don't, don't all of you leave. Just take the men. Now, okay, well, look, you can take the men. I'll let you even take the women. But leave all your livestock and stuff behind. In Exodus ten twenty four through 26, you hear these words. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices... And burn offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind. God wants to build into you the equipping so that when you walk, the events of your life show Jesus. He wants to build into you the maturity to know the difference between a good thing and a God thing. He wants to build into you an attitude that will never at any time compromise with the Pharaohs in your life. You've heard from God. You've been equipped and you can boldly look at Pharaoh and say, I won't leave a hoof behind in this place. When you've heard from God, you've set your heart on it and you refuse to be dissuaded. This comes after constant training though. You have to allow yourself to be trained. You have to allow yourself to be raised up. The law and the prophets and everything in them prophesied about future events. They used the events of their lives to teach us something. We need to learn the lesson. We need to be willing to be tested. We need to be willing at 40 when we're strong. You get that? At 40 was when Moses was strong? Those of you that haven't reached 40, don't whine. Those of you that haven't reached 80, don't talk about your past your calling or on the backside of your calling. Moses began the deliverance of Israel at 80. When we will start to allow you to talk about being old or maybe on the back side of your calling is at 120, which is when Moses finished his. And by the way, when he finished his, it said his eyesight had not dimmed and his natural force was unabated. Now I'll let you do your own word studies and figure out what that means. The man was still fruitful, still fruitful in every way of his life. Joshua, late, late in his life, said he was just as strong as when he began. God will make you strong because the strength doesn't come from you. It comes from Him. But it takes time to learn how to do that, how to walk in it. What I want from you is to learn Moshe's lessons. Be willing to be stripped of your strength. Be willing to stand barefoot from God, before God. But also be willing to do what God says. And no matter how small you feel, reach out and grab the thing that you want to run from by the tail. Let God do miracles in your life. He's been doing it for a long time. He's good at it. No matter how small you are, God can use you. No matter how weak you feel, God can use you. If you feel strong in and of yourself, God will make you small. If you feel small, God will make you strong. That's just how He is. He takes the high things and make them low, and He takes the low things and raises them to heights. That's what God does. He prepares a new way in everyone's life. Find it. Embrace it. Learn the lesson of Moshe, and then tell Pharaoh, I won't leave a hoof behind. When God's told you what to do, do not compromise. Do not bend the knee to bail. Don't do it. Not for any reason. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.